Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 76 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, Master Transmuter Gottlieb. I don't even know, man. Well, we've kind of transmuted places this week, right? I, I'm uh, on the West Coast uh, now. I'm in Seattle. You're on the East Coast. We had a time mix up because we couldn't keep our, our time zone straight when we first tried to record it. So, you know, I just thought I'd shout that out. We're, we're on different planes right now, man. We've transmuted places. We are. We have. We have switched. Yeah. So I am... Currently in D.C. testing with the Pantheon, trying to get ready for the Pro Tour next weekend in Richmond. Uh, You're in Seattle finalizing a place to live, basically, right? Correct. I found a place. I actually signed my lease this morning. So, uh, yeah. Hell yeah. I'll be in Seattle full time. Dude, I'm I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited, too. I can't wait. I love it out here. Weather's been great. House we found is great. Everything's great. And Magic's great right now. So, you know, all upside. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Pro Tour next weekend should be pretty exciting. I don't want to I basically don't want to say anything about it because like anything that I say could like you could read into like whatever information I have or whatever, but it should be cool. Right. Even if you didn't say anything, we people would be analyzing what you didn't say. So puts you in an awkward spot for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And normally I wouldn't even care, but I am working with a team this time. So uh, I don't think it is fair to them for yeah. me to do that. So uh, we'll see what happens going forward and whether or not I work with the team or not. Like I do definitely miss being able to just be like open with people and talk about things and like share information and everything, but can't do it for this one. And I greatly apologize. Well, you know, you gotta, you have to explore all options. And if this works better for you in this one instance, I say, go for it. I know our listeners will understand. Uh, I know they'll still be here to get the full download from you in the week following the pro tour. So I, I don't think you should feel too that too bad about it. You've, you've earned a lot of credibility as far as sharing goes. You've certainly been sharing your ideas about standard up to this point. So take some of the pressure off yourself. Don't feel quite so bad. Uh, I'm always going to beat myself up, man. That's just kind of how I do, you know? No, I know. I know you're a perfectionist. You want to give everything to it. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Next weekend should be pretty fun. We will have definitely a pro tour recap and people have been asking about unified standard a lot. And I know that, it probably applies to like a vast majority of our listener base. And we are definitely cognizant of that. And we want to get something out on that topic. So we might just have to blend that in with the pro tour recap. And I I think I'm fine with that. I I also think I would just advocate for waiting until the pro tour results come in because you're going to have, I mean, likely going to have updated deck lists and more technology and like the metagame will shift. And then maybe there'll be like this new, like sweet third deck that you get as an option that doesn't take cards from anything else, you know? Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with all the people who have put in the tons of preparation. And I know, you know, hanging out in our discord, there's been a ton of discussion for honestly weeks now. People are working really hard on this RPTQ format and nothing wrong with that. Totally reasonable. It's only going to yield dividends in the end, but for our purposes, I want to have the whole picture before we dive into it. And then maybe we really can lay some kernels of knowledge out there and, you know, maybe find the optimal configuration for this very challenging and unique tournament that people are trying to prepare for. 
Yeah, I, I think I'm going to actually like spend some time working on it and thinking about it because, yeah, I, I definitely do want to be able to help. And I think that going in with the mentality of like, oh, blue, white, black, green, mono red is just like the default thing. Like, I I don't know. I find it hard to believe that you're actually going to win a tournament with that configuration. So there is some work to be done. I've said the same thing. I mean, it's too easy, right? It's like, if you know that's the default configuration, every single team that's worth their salt will have preparations for that configuration and be designed to be favored against that configuration. I mean, that's just the baseline. So where things go from there, that's kind of what you're going to have to unpack if you're going to get an edge on the entire field. Don't take the easy way out. There's a lot of room for creativity here. Um, I see people just saying, well, this is obviously the default configuration. No, it's not that easy. I promise you. Go deeper. Uh, and there's definitely the potential for reward. Yeah, this standard format has already had a bunch of cool decks, too. So, I mean, it, you are just doing yourself a disservice, I think, by going with the level zero strat. So. And not only that, the decks themselves have so many configurations. They're so infinitely customizable. They can go bigger. They can go smaller. They can have gear hulks. They cannot have gear hulks. You can have ballista in different spots. So there's, you know, a lot of little tweaks you can make. And if you're able to make all those tweaks effectively as well, that's more points for your team. Yep, definitely. But uh, this week, it's about modern. Been a while. Been a while since we checked in on modern with a full show, I think. Dude, it has been a while. I'm pretty excited. There have been some other shifts. Uh, I wrote about modern for my article on SCG last week. And I don't know. Things things just keep happening, man. I actually like it. So uh, I guess to sort of set the stage, uh, humans and Hollow One were the best decks, right? That's That's kind of undisputed. Yep, for sure. That's where I think our last show, that's where we came out. Humans and Hollow One at the top. So uh, Teferi, Hero of Dominaria gets printed, and now suddenly Jeskai's a deck again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, made some serious inroads into the metagame very, very quickly. And I think part of that is certainly as a response to humans being the de facto best deck, but also like Teferi just ended up being very, very good in modern. And I think that we should talk about that and talk about why because you see like these you know four and five mana planeswalkers pop up in modern occasionally like i played a couple tournaments with nahiri in my deck and you know there's been like some gideon juras and jace architect of thoughts and stuff like that so it's not that weird for me to see someone experiment with teferi but the real selling point for me was when people explained that it's effectively a three mana planeswalker on a later turn and you see that effect used like very powerfully in standard with things like seal away. Right. But like most of the interaction in modern is one mana. So mm-hmm. like you can, you can Teferi on turn five or even like turn four with search for Ascanta if you like turbo flip that thing and have like lightning bolt and path to exile up. Yeah. An- another really good tweak that you just mentioned that speaks in favor of Teferi in modern is the fact that you can turbo a search for Ascanta. It happens very, very quickly in modern, unlike standard where, you know, usually waiting a little while, it's never really a piece of acceleration. It's more your engine. But in modern, it absolutely has the potential to be acceleration as well, you know, beyond the absolutely ridiculous combination with Teferi that just closes the game very, very quickly. But if you go just down the list of like one and two mana spells that Jeskai wants to be playing that you can use to either protect Teferi or, you know, clean up the board, Teferi on turn five, untap, play two removal spells. An attacking deck can't come back from that. Like that's just the end of the game in most instances. There's Teferi, I have logic not open. So whatever you do, I'm going to counter right now. There's so many proactive plays you can make with Teferi where when I saw Teferi, I was like, this is a very good card in standard. Maybe it reaches back a little bit. Did I think it would supplant Jace the Mind Sculptor as the 
de facto control Planeswalker in the format? Absolutely not. There is no way I could have envisioned that. And honestly, Teferi just won a vintage tournament a couple weeks ago. So <laughs> this guy's kind of the limit for this card. Yeah. It's completely uh, dominating multiple formats now, well beyond my wildest expectations. And I thought the card was great. So it's, it's proven to be somewhere beyond great and you know moving into that kind of all-time range if it's able to really solidify its stranglehold on this format. Dude, I feel like I got tricked. I feel like they purposefully like read into the fact that the community always, you know, they look at a five mana planeswalker and they're like, oh, this is like pretty similar to Obnixilis, right? Like the the plus is draw a card, the minus is like kill a thing, then it has some ultimate that basically wins the game, right? And it's like those cards are generally fine, right? But mm-hmm. being able to untap two lands is just stupid. It's just dumb. Especially when the land is also your win condition <laughs> in some of your decks. Right. Like that's where it goes completely off the rails. Yeah, so uh, I, I feel like they did. They they purposefully designed an Obnixilis like Planeswalker that is just super sick, and I feel like I got tricked. Like I, I, I kind of take it as a personal attack. Well, you know, if you remember our narrative around Teferi, and I, I think it evolved a bit as time went on and as we did our top ten. But our first peek at Teferi, I think our our basic rap on him was just like. Yeah, probably great planeswalker. Nothing exciting here. Just, you know, this is what these planeswalkers look like. Very typical. And there wasn't a lot of buzz around Teferi prior to really diving into the set and and getting some games. And when when we were in spoiler season, all the hype was not around Teferi. Uh, It built up as we got closer and closer, but the initial starting point hype was not around Teferi. So you were not alone in being tricked by this card. It was uh, deceptive on its face, I would say. Oh, I know. I, I The same thing happened with like Sword and Feast and Famine, though, too, where it's just like, yeah, OK, like you hit them, they discard a card, whatever. And then the first time I saw someone like cast it, atta- like equip it, attack with a creature and then like untap their five lands. I'm just like, oh, my God, this card's insane. Right. And Deferi obviously does this to a smaller effect, but it's like the same type of deal where like you get to do like this huge, like board changing thing, but also do something else. And it's just nuts. Free, free mana, man. When are we going to learn free mana is no joke? How many times can we be offered free mana and be like, oh, this might be okay? Until we're like, all right, free mana is always insane. Like, it's just a, a given at this point. Right. You know, if you've ever done any insane Teferi things where like you use the untapped mana to cast a particularly large pull or maybe in modern cast a particularly large Sphinx's Revelation or secure the waste, <laughs> that's when the power level of this card really just goes into another stratosphere. Yeah, it, it is more than Obnixilis for sure. And mm-hmm. yeah, when you're when you're playing against decks like Tron or things that operate on like mostly sorcery speed, I guess like Jund is another good one. Where like you get to play five mana like personal howling mind that will eventually kill their best permanent and also just like still have counterspell mana up. That's insane. And don't sleep on the minus three either being this really like versatile, ca- like it just gets everything right. And it, it does so in a, a quasi permanent way, I guess I would say. Sometimes it's better to have things in the library than any other zone, right? Like it, that's definitely an upside in some spots. And I, I was just thinking a little bit about modern the other day and not really with any purpose, just thinking about like past modern decks I've worked on and interesting stuff that's out there. And I started to think about Emrakul decks and, and decks that put Emrakul into play, not at instant speed, like with Through the Breach, but at sorcery speed, be it through something like Polymorph or some other goofy thing. Um, and I'm like, well, I don't know if you can do that anymore. Like, I don't think that's actually a real thing that matters when Teferi is a very prominent card in the format and just cleans it up so well. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, these decks also have Supreme Verdict and the blue-white decks have like Detention right. Sphere and stuff. But yeah, it, it is like, it's kind of like when a format morphs to the point where 
like people are playing like some sort of disenchant effect main. It's like, oh, this this thing used to be like this unkillable permanent, right? But like nothing is safe anymore. Mm-hmm. Yep, things have changed. So anyway, Teferi's great. Uh, Jess Guy's great. Jonathan Rossum's pretty great too. You almost called and, your shot with that one. I, I know you were, you were chirping a little oh, bit on Twitter dude. about him winning the tournament. He sent me a message and he apologized. He's like, dude, I'm sorry I couldn't <laughs> close. I'm like, you got second. Second is very good. Yes, it is very good. And uh, I thought his deck list was very good. Um, it's it's hard for me to not envision this deck being a continued player in the format. And every time you say that about a modern deck, you get burned. But like, it just answers everything. The power level is too high. People love this style of play. Like, you know, someone like Kevin Jones is going to pick up this deck for two years past where it's viable. I mean, these these are right in the wheelhouse of a lot of the typical modern grinders you see on the SCG circuit. And I think this deck will only expand in popularity, especially at the top tables going forward. Also, you can't go wrong with Rossum's list. Like, I'm, I'm looking at his main deck, and it's just like, there's not a card I would change. Yeah, I thought it was incredibly well-built. Not a lot of frills, just the cards it needs. I, I do, you know, kind of sung its praises a little bit before, but he doesn't play a copy of Senx's Revelations. Is that, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, he, he has one Secure the Waste, which I guess, like, could go in theory, but I think it gives your deck an extra layer. And right, Sphinx and is a lot of outs, too. A lot of outs against otherwise unassailable board states. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, you just suddenly create a bunch of pressure out of nowhere. And, I mean, it's it's also a win condition that is findable with Search for Escanto, which I think is pretty good. Yeah, I think he correctly recognized that you don't need Sphinx's Revelation anymore. Like, you, your draw engines are in place. You are going to see a lot of your deck when you put its very into play, which has now become your primary goal with this deck. That is how you're going to win games. Almost every single game is going to end in that fashion. And there's, the, you know, the random Snapcaster beatdown game um, and post-board when clicks come in and things get a little bit more aggressive. Sure, those will end games as well. But in most games, he's looking to set up Teferi and it's almost always going to be good enough because it's this deck is so well built to take advantage of it. Right. And I, we talked about like blue-white control way back where I was just like, this is... This is not really a deck. It doesn't have a game plan. Trying to play full control doesn't actually work. And the Jeskai decks are better suited to being like Snapcaster burn decks. And now I think with Teferi, with Logic Knot, Search for Kanta, and Modern in very specifically the place that it's in, like you can kind of play that strategy. But the thing that I like about Jeskai specifically is that you still have the Snapcaster burn plan. Like, if things are not mm-hmm. going right, you still have, like, Snap, Bolt, Snap, or Bolt, Snap, Bolt, that one, and then, like, Colonnade Beats, you know? So, I like the fact that this this deck is mostly going to bury you, but it can also just burn you out. Yeah, where decks are still doing a lot of damage to themselves via their mana base, and I, I guess I don't really know where on the spectrum we are as far as damaging mana bases right now, because there are some decks that are definitely in the top tiers, such as humans, which really don't beat themselves up very much, if at all. So uh, historically, we're maybe on the little bit lower side of things as far as damage from mana bases. But as long as there's a portion of decks really beating themselves up in the early turns of the game, being able to just take control of a game, you know, if, if you're at 15, you're vulnerable to those type of Snapcaster bolt beats that you're talking about. You're, you're not able to sit there safely and, and play a 20 turn game. So I, I guess, you know, back in the day, I was a big supporter of blue white. 
Teferi makes me want to be a supporter of blue-white again, but I've come around to the aggressive slant that this deck is able to present just because it's so well-rounded right now. It's able to play so many different game plans, and I, I do like the quick, like, fairies-ish ability to just be like, okay, I'm in control of this game now, and it's going to be over in two turns, three turns. It's a powerful, time-tested, proactive way of playing these type of control decks. So I would also lean Jeskai right now, even previously having been a supporter of the blue-white style of these decks. Oh, yeah. And also, you know how easy it is. Like, even if your deck doesn't necessarily do a bunch of damage to yourself, like, you're not playing Death Shadow necessarily, but people against Burn will try to make it so they're only taking, like, four damage from their mana base. But when you're playing against a control deck, it's really difficult psychologically to just decide, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to, like, fetch a basic here and potentially not be able to cast, like, this card if I draw it way down the line or whatever. I think it's so much easier to just go, like, fetch shock, fetch shock, fetch shock, and then you're just in range. Right, right. And you know, in most cases, they're probably right in doing so. Like establishing your clock early is so important that you really can't afford any of those mana based stumbles. You'd rather just take the damage in most spots, but it does open up your vulnerability. And, you know, this deck is well poised to prey on that vulnerability. Yeah. And then they just play like secure the waste for four and kill all your blockers and you just die. You know, mm-hmm. there's just nothing you can do. So, yep. Here comes those guys in my colonnade and the game's over in two turns. Another thing that helps with Jeskai's rise was. The lack of Tron decks and also the fact that humans was the most popular deck. And when PT Rivals was rolling around, I made a claim that like Jeskai controlled losing the finals because I felt that there was going to be some creature deck or like some anti-creature deck with a bunch of removal that was eventually going to lose to like some weirdo, like non-interactive deck. Right. And that ended up coming true when I lost the lantern with Mardu, you know, and Mardu was basically basically doing the same thing as Jeskai is, except Jeskai's like a little bit better at it because they have things like Lightning Helix and more tools for card advantage other than just like, hope I draw my Bedlam Revelers, right? Like they have Cryptic and Snapcaster, Surge, all this stuff, and now Teferi. So I think they they more consistently crush humans and they just do a better job of it because their life total isn't necessarily in danger all the time. Like I won a lot of games at one life with Mardu and I think that, Mardu is still a favorite against humans, but I think that Jeskai is just much better against it. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. I mean, if you had to play a modern tournament right now, are you considering Jeskai? I know these are decks historically that you've hated throughout the history of modern. Is this the time where you're like, all right, maybe maybe there's something here now? Uh, I mean, it's it's already coming full circle where, where Karin's making a comeback, and I'm sure we'll talk about that oh, at yeah, some point, will. but it's like, man, that's that's dangerous. That is dangerous. Like, anytime Jeskai is good, it's not good for very long. But Rossum has four hard counters in his main deck. He has the four Snapcaster Mages. He has ways to actually remove, like, Ulamog and Worldbreaker and Wormcoil Engine if they resolve. But it's the Planeswalkers that are the problem, right? Like, if if Karn or Ugin sticks, like, they're just kind of there unless you have Cryptic Command. Yeah, I mean, these decks... I've played against them a million times. They all fall down eventually. They all crumble eventually in the face of Karn and his colorless cohorts. They are able to to fight sometimes. Um, they stunt your mana a little bit in the early game, but at some point, Tron is just going to do its thing. And there's not a whole lot Jeskai can do about it unless they really, really, really want to give up a ton of sideboard slots to the matchup. Um, I think... It looks like Rossum didn't really do that. You know, he's got some cards that are fine in the matchup. Don't get me wrong. He gets Negate, Disdainful Stroke, Ceremonious Rejection. All of those cards are completely fine. But they're not fundamentally changing the game. And Tron is still able to do what it wants to do. 
and will eventually do so always. It's, it's just the way this matchup goes. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that's kind of terrifying. It's not like playing more Field of Ruins would necessarily do all that much. I generally liked Blue-White Control's matchup against Tron because you had about the same amount of hard counters, uh, but you also had Spreading Seas to go with your Field Spreading of Ruins. So for, that was that was a big for deal. For what it's worth, for what it's worth, I, I mean, it's better. I'm not disputing that. I've I've also beaten many four Spreading Seas, four Field of Ruin, Blue-White decks because, I mean, at just some point, you find the card you need to kind of reset the board or you draw you know, a nature's claim when they're in a vulnerable position and you untap with Tron on a turn where they didn't expect you to have it and they're just super vulnerable and, and they lose from that point. It, it happens over and over. And look, Tron is built to prey on these strategies. That's just what it does. Um, oh, yeah. It's effective. Everything. So even when you want to target it um, and you're giving up so much by targeting it that like, why are you playing this deck if, if you're giving up seven of your sideboard slots to try and get to 50% versus Tron? I don't know. I don't know if it's the right way to go. No, absolutely. I And I basically agree with you. It's just like hope to dodge, hope to burn them out, play the two field of ruins because it's pretty good against basically everyone. And maybe, maybe you can actually like keep Tron off of seven mana for just like a little bit longer. You know, like obviously the, the Vendillion clicks help there. I'd be curious to know if Rossum cut the damping spheres because they were bad, like we said they were, or... Uh, because he just didn't expect a lot of Tron, but he's also got like the ceremonious rejection and the disdainful stroke, which you don't typically see unless people are specifically targeting Tron. Yeah, I mean, they go a little bit broader than Damping Sphere. I mean, if as long as you don't believe there's any storm in the format, I think I think they both go broader than Damping Sphere. It probably has more to do with the Damping Spheres being underwhelming, not blacked up by a clock. You need to have a clock if you're going to play Damping Sphere. Otherwise, this is all not worth it. Don't Don't waste your time. Yeah, and I, I mean, the, the two Vendillions in the sideboard help. And again, this deck is far more aggressive than a normal blue-white deck. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to say that they have zero clock. It is pretty close. Uh, maybe it's just a matter of, like, rejection and stroke playing a little bit better with Teferi, which is pretty nice because, you know, if you get to do that in the matchup, like, hey, maybe you have a chance. Maybe you can draw, like, a Counterspell or a Snapcaster every other turn and actually just counter everything they do. It's possible. Yeah, completely possible. Um, it's it's got to happen quick, though. I mean, you, you need that combined with the early disruption, right? Oh, yeah. No, it's it's a tall order. Don't get me wrong. I, I would much rather be on the Karn side of things, for sure. To no one's surprise, me too. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's, let's circle back to SCG Louisville. I, I will never pronounce... That city's name correctly. That's, How do you yeah, pronounce it? I would say Louisville, but I'm I'm sure that's offending someone who's actually from Louisville. So <laughs> sorry about that. But no, yeah, you have you have to like blur it together and uh, just yeah make it not have as many syllables like Louisville. Like Louisville. Louisville. I don't know. Yeah. It's not mispronounced. That's not that's not good podcasting. Us sitting here and poorly pronouncing things. So no, no, it, it absolutely isn't. But uh, <laughs> our new Pyromancer won the tournament and. Uh, Marshall Arthur's absolutely destroyed the tournament. Yeah, that's the word on the street. He like didn't lose a match, right? Correct. Didn't didn't lose a match and went six zero in the top eight. So let's un- let's unpack this a little bit. You're the guy to talk about this. Talk to me about his Mardu Pyromancer list. This is right on the heels of Jess guy kind of returning to prominence. Tron is probably at the lowest it's ever been. And I think at this tournament specifically, there might've been like three in day two or yeah, something. It was, it was like, basically no one was playing Tron. Right. Uh, so like 
Boggles kind of ran loose at this tournament too. And Marshall did some really cool things to Mardu Pyromancer, which is mostly a deck that people have found very difficult to like iterate on just because it's like, it, it is this, this kind of like combo ish deck where it's like, you know, you need the instant sorceries to fuel the reveler and the pyromancer. You need the K commands to keep bringing back the revelers. You need the looting. You need the discards. Like you don't have a lot of slots to play with, you know? Uh, but three, three to four slots would be my guess as far as flexibility in the main deck. And that might be pushing it. Right. And, uh, 20 lands is kind of the norm. Sometimes you'll see people play like some copies of Manamorphose and go lower on the land count. And I'm still in support of that, like playing like two copies of Manamorphose and 19 lands. But again, like that eats up a slot, you know? Uh, so mm-hmm. Mar- Marshall has three copies of Blood Moon main deck, which I think is a great call if you think that people are going to be playing against or people are going to be playing Jeskai. And I, I want to say like, oh yeah, it looked like he crushed a bunch of Jeskai tr- decks, but like he just crushed everyone. So I don't know. I do feel like Mardu is a favorite in the matchup. I also think that Jeskai is another one of, or like Mardu against Jeskai is another one of those matchups where it's like, it would be very easy to deal yourself a lot of damage with your mana base. But Marshall had five basics, including the basic planes and three Campbells in the sideboard. So like he had a lot of ways to make sure that he did not get burned out. And he even had a copy of Dreadboard to potentially take out Teferi. Right. Good inclusion for that week for sure. Yeah. So uh, Blood Moon if, if that is kind of your game plan, you can use that to pretty good effect against humans, against Boggles, uh, against Jeskai Control for sure. I, I think it's like just a really good choice right now. Like we haven't seen a whole lot of Blood Moons recently and it looked like his Blood Moons were actually just very good for him the entire tournament. It's always tough to spot that tournament where your Blood Moons are going to be insane. Because, I, I mean, look, I've played tournaments where my Blood Moons were incredibly disappointing over and over and over. And it's not just about like the number of non-basics, it's like how much of the mindscape of the general tournament is Blood Moon occupying? Because if it's occupying enough, you really can't do it successfully. But I think you're spot on that this was a very good Blood Moon week. And, you know, as Jeskai spreads and becomes maybe the default best deck, which I I think like the conversation is trending that way now, depending on who you listen to. Some people still want to talk humans right now. Um, But I think the conversation is trending towards Jeskai being the best deck. And that points to a little bit of Blood Moon time coming forward. So definitely be sure you're accounting for Blood Moon in your in your deck's plans right now. Yeah, and Rossum is. I mean, he's he has two celestial purges in his sideboard, right? Like what more can you possibly do to actually account for that card? I mean, obviously fetch your basics if you can afford to, but I mean, that's about it. Like game one, you you might just get got by it. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, <laughs> they'll steal a lot of game ones from you without a doubt. A little discard, a little blood moon, and, and that's a wrap right there. Yeah, and with with a deck like Mardu, where you have 15 removal spells or whatever, and like Lingering Souls, Young Pyromancer, or like all these cards that are really effective against decks like Jund or other creature decks, just having a card that is like a one-hit KO against a deck that you might have to grind against when you have a bunch of dead cards is pretty awesome. I've always been a big fan of playing on easy mode. That's probably not going to change. If, if you give me plausible outs um, that can just take out a portion of the entire field and give you free wins, I, I'm probably going to take them uh, as, as long as they make sense in the context of the format. And I think Blood Moon in this list does exactly that. Free wins are always yeah. good. I the the purist in me just wants to cut them and be like, no, I'm going to play a fair game of magic. I'm going to do what my deck wants to do, because realistically, the blood moons don't interact favorably with the rest of your deck. You know, like it's it's not a spell. It's like not a great card to discard. It's not a great card to like reveler into. It doesn't trigger pyromancer like it's it is kind of bad, but it is just like the, the free win button in the deck, which 
you know, realistically, you should have in a modern tournament, you should have your, your deck have some sort of capability of doing that. Yeah, you, you got to the point that I wanted to emphasize is that modern tournament is like this is a super important strategy in the modern context because everything is so broad because the field goes so wide because you're almost certainly going to face something in the course of a tournament that you absolutely did not prepare for being able to reset with these free wins is definitely the way to go at a lot of instances and it's something i've always tried to do in modern i'd like just having those very easy outs those very easy games i I don't want to fight over every single inch over the course of a 15 round modern tournament it's asking too much i think so thumbs up for blood moon on my part yeah i definitely agree with that and Marshall was just like, you know what? Tron's not very big. I have these Blood Moons main deck. I'm not going to waste a lot of sideboard slots on Tron. I'm not going to bother with Molten Reigns, any of that nonsense. Great call. Instead, he found uh, room for three Wear Tears, which is more than I would normally play. Like, I, I basically have never considered playing three of that card, but very, very good against Boggles and random things like Leyline of Sanctity. Three copies of Ensnaring Bridge, which is insane in a Humans and Hollow One metagame. Like, I, I think we we noted this with, like, Lantern and the Blue-Red Prison deck, but it's like, there are other decks that can play Ensnaring Bridge very favorably, and this is certainly one of them. Oh, you mean to tell me the deck where everything costs one mana and you play Faithless Looting is also a good home for, for the uh, Ensnaring Bridge package? Who would have yeah. guessed? Where you, you have basically maxed three cards in your hand at any one point? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, good call. As it turns out, Ensnaring Bridge is great. And again, it's one of those cards that doesn't really interact with your deck. It's an artifact, not instant or sorcery, but still, it is lights out against so many strategies that that is probably what you want to be doing in modern. And uh, then three copies of Campbell, which I think is just awesome against all the combo decks, uh, gives you a pretty reasonable clock, which the deck definitely needs. Uh, Some people have played Goblin Rabble Master or Hazaret, Chandra, something like that in these slots, but... Campbell helps against Burn, helps against Storm, is passable against Tron. I don't think it is good, but it helps. Like, it is another actually threatening card against them. And, yeah, probably pretty good against Jeskai, too. Um, It's a card that, you know, I haven't played a ton of Mardu Pyromancer. I've played it a very small amount, and it's a card that I always kind of started with a couple copies in my list, and I forced it out by the end, just believing that I could play something a little broader. But as you list the matchups where you're like, okay with it. I mean, that's what modern's about, right? Like getting as much out of your sideboard as you possibly can. So if there's six matchups that you can say, okay, I'm basically fine with having this card in my deck, that's worth a lot. Like being able to go that broad is worth a lot. And if there's one where it's a KO, something like Storm, although, you know, they're going to account for something like combo post-board games and, and definitely have an out to it. But, you know, in those instances where it buys you four turns where they just can't combo off and they're looking for their piece and they have to take six damage or eight damage, that's that's as good as shutting them out of the game. You know, you don't actually have to prevent them from comboing off. It can just be an effective clock and a nuisance, really. So maybe I've undervalued this card. It's time for me to reevaluate my inclusion of combo. Right. Uh, another thing worth noting is that with cards like Ensnaring Bridge, Campbell, and uh, the Blood Moons, these cards are way better in like a Thoughtseize Inquisition deck because you can proactively strip whatever answer to that card that they have. And yeah, just like protect it, right? So it, it's not like you're just like jamming Blood Moon hoping they don't have an answer. It's like you actually get to like set it up with some protection too. Yeah. And if you think about it, he's almost warped the identity of this deck to doing exactly that, right? There's this three mana thing, which shuts down a huge percentage of opposing game plans, be it Blood Moon and Snaring Bridge or Campbell. And, you know, if you can't beat it, 
beyond the fact that you have to have your answer to it, survive through inquisition, uh, has survived through thoughts. These, all these things have to collective brutality as well. All these things have to miss your answer to this out. And then they're going to put it into play. And that's their new game plan in matchups where they otherwise wouldn't be able to successfully, you know, do the lingering souls, plink, plink damage. My pyromancer makes a couple tokens, I block, and then I'm able to steal the game with a lightning bolt. Where that strategy isn't viable, they're just saying, okay, I have a three mana thing and I'm all in on protecting it and having it win the game for me. And maybe, you know, that's maybe that's the way to go forward for Mardu Pyromancer. This is a deck that after your success at the Pro Tour kind of faded down a little bit. It didn't take over the format at that point. There wasn't really any clear reason why, I don't think. I mean, like humans rose to the top of the format in that same period. And we saw this at the Pro Tour being very much an anti-humans choice. Right. Um, but it didn't take on that same level of prominence. And maybe this is the package that it was missing to do so in a more wide open field than the Pro Tour. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of functioning as a, a prison deck in post-board games, which is kind of right. sweet. And... I don't know. I feel like maybe just not not a lot of people are playing with it, but I've talked to a lot of people at Grand Prix or like seemingly a lot of people. Maybe it's just my perception because, you know, they're coming up and talking to me about the deck specifically because I've experience with it. But like it seems like more people are picking it up even now. And, you know, there's a Facebook group just dedicated to people who are playing Marty Pyromancer. It's just like I, I am curious to see what the metagame share for the deck has been. Because if it is low, like the deck has still been performing quite well for a low metagame share. Mm, I guess that's true. And especially if you like its Jeskai matchup going forward, it could be time for a resurgence of this archetype for sure. I mean, it, it does seem like it would have a great Jeskai matchup. Like obviously you can lose, but you get a second Dreadbore in there, you're less likely to just get KO'd by Teferi and I, I like your chances, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I, I think it definitely has the tools and, and has the free I win button as well, uh, backed up by all the disruption and, you know, a, a reasonable clock. So, yeah, this this checks the boxes of things I want against the Jeskai style decks. All right. So the remainder of Louisville was uh, Mardu, Jeskai, Boggles, Jeskai, Humans, Storm, which is Caleb and only Caleb can win with it. And then two copies of yep, only him. Yeah. And, and then two copies of Jund rounding out the top eight, which is like kind of weird to see a resurgence of Jund. Like not a great tournament for their or not a great top eight, I guess, for them to show up in. Like a couple of Jess guys, a Mardu, and a Boggles in top fours. Like eh, Jund is not very good against the winner's metagame, it seems like. I, I guess I would counter your statement by saying I don't know which metagame Jund is good against. That's the, like I know someone like Jadine is very talented with the deck. She loves the deck. She's very comfortable playing with it, and she continues to have success. So obvious, obviously, it's working for her. And she wrote an article about how she felt that most people are playing Jund wrong. She says she plays Jund very aggressively, and that's where she's able to find a lot of her wins. So that's some interesting, oh, yeah. uh, interesting information for me to consider for sure. She even cited me as like a, a point of disagreement. She was like, Jerry said this and he's just a crazy person. So I, I am willing to believe that, you know, anything I say about Jund is just wrong, you know? Sure. I mean, we, we try and talk about everything. And it's not like we have reps with every modern deck uh, in the history of modern. Like we're, we're, we're certainly not all Jund experts. But I, I will say that if you were to ask me to kind of lay out the favorable matchups for Jund, I'm not sure I really have any for you. I mean, I guess I would say like, sometimes boggles but I, i've certainly lost to boggles a bunch as jund like they just sometimes you aren't able to do anything they have two creatures and your liliana is worthless and i, I don't know i don't have a favorable matchup for you so the fact that it really sees any success at all it, it's hard for me to understand exactly why but it could be my own fault as a jund player yeah john's i have done typically pretty well with but i don't think i've ever beaten boggles or ever beaten tron so 
Okay. Take that for whatever it's worth. Yeah. I mean, what are you beating then? Are you beating Storm? Is that what you're looking to exploit? Or Because when I used to play a lot of Storm, oh, yeah. I, I always felt favored as the Storm player, to be honest with you, against John. I had a very good plan. Yeah, we... We talked about this at some point. We have to we have to go back and play that matchup. I'll smash you. Okay, we'll do it. I, I mean, I know Finkel <laughs> felt the same way. He he was all about his Jun matchup. And this is like a different world of Jun. So who knows how card choice has changed all that. And I, I'm talking certainly Stormless from a very long time ago. So I'm willing to be wrong in this one. But there was a time where I was comfortable playing Storm against Jun. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about like right of Flame Storm, then yeah, maybe no, no, not edge, that. But like... I, when it, when it was Seething Song, I think John was a pretty big favorite, or like Black Green, whatever. Yeah, I think I'm I'm talking post Pro Tour Valencia Storm, which I think is like functionally the same as the deck is now. Except, oh no, it's lacking Baral at that point. Didn't something get banned? I don't know because I feel like something got like Seething Song got banned, and then they moved away from just pure rituals into gifts because they didn't have enough rituals. I don't I don't think they had gifts at that tournament either. I mean, they still had Ascension at that point. Right. That's the differing point. They didn't have Seething Song. Song was banned at that tournament. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Fair. Whatever. Completely irrelevant. Another thing that is kind of interesting is that, like, Hollow One seems like it's doing similar things to Mardu, where it's like everyone talks about it, and it, it kind of gets, like, heralded as one of the best decks, but it's like, I don't see people playing it very often. I don't know if everyone has just, like, gotten sick of the die rolls, and they don't want to live that life anymore. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I... I was very convinced that Hollow One was just going to be one of the best decks in the format. It could also be that people have found the correct ways to adjust. They know what to disrupt against them, what kind of removal is good against Hollow One. Any deck that's just attacking is going to have some vulnerabilities, and maybe Hollow Ones are more pronounced than humans. And and maybe if you just want to attack, there's no reason to stray from the humans beatdown plan and go to something like Hollow One, because Hollow One's a little bit more easily targeted. Uh, I'm not sure. I would have. I, I would expect Hollow One to have a bigger metagame share than it currently has. Yeah, I would too. I I, I will note that uh, during spell slinging uh, GPDC, I think I was playing Mordu Pyromancer and I played against a couple different Hollow Ones and like that matchup's pretty fun. I hadn't actually played it before, but like them casting Burning Inquiry and filling my graveyard, just like your deck gets to work on just like overdrive. It's awesome. Mm, so, do you think it's a it's a favorable matchup for Mardu? Or is it just like a complete crapshoot, depending on kind of how the discards work and and what they're able to do? I mean, obviously, it could just end up being a crapshoot. You know, it's like I kept my Colagons. Yeah. I think you could say that about every single one of the matches. Right. Against Hollow like one, right? I kept my Colagons command, and like that was the one time that they got to keep their Hollow One, and like the other couple times, like they had to discard their Hollow One and weren't doing much of anything. And then, yeah, post-board when you have Incineroar Bridge, I mean, it, it just seems so tough for them to win. Like, there, there were some mm. sweats where Blood Gas, Lightning Bolt, like, could kill me or whatever. And, like, Blood Gas is just very good against you in general. But for the most part, I would say, yes, I think it's favored. But, yeah, obviously, if, like, they inquiry away all my spells and then play two Hollow Ones, like, you're not going to win, right? But sure, sure. That's, that's just kind of what you're signing up for. Yes, it is. Past that, we have Grixis Death Shadow, and I don't really know why people are playing this deck. Can you explain this to me? Uh, modern cards are expensive, and after you have invested in the cards for Grixis Death Shadow, you may be pot committed at that point and unwilling to leave your deck behind. Um, you know, maybe you foiled it out and you're quite proud of your Grixis Death Shadow list, because that's all I have. I, I don't see any good reason to be playing this deck right now. Um, I continue to see it in queues, I continue to see that tournaments. I can't really tell you why. I, I just don't know where your good matchups lie. The person I'm singling out here is Dylan Donegan, and I know that he has access to cards. 
I know that he could get a different deck if he wanted to. I know that he likes playing this deck and he is quite good at it, but this deck is very bad against humans and pretty bad against like bigger blue-white control decks mm-hmm. like Jeskai. So I'm not really getting the appeal here. I mean, you could you could sell if it was super strong against everything else in the format. Maybe you could sell me on it because modern does still remain a very wide open format. Um, but I don't I don't buy that. I mean, I think it's fine against the rest of the format, but not impressive enough that you're going to talk me into playing it right now. Yeah, like you like your Junt matchup? No, I can't imagine the Hollow One matchup is particularly good. Green White Company that seems bad. Titan Shift was always like pretty close but bad. It's like I don't know, man. I. If, if Stubborn Denial is not great or is, like, only good against half the decks, I don't really want to be playing Grixis. Sure. I mean, the problem point was when you had to start relying on Teamer Battle Rage. Like, when the deck was really great, it didn't need Teamer Battle Rage. It right. had just fine, fair plans. A- as soon as that tipping point was reached, don't get me wrong, it was the correct way to try and keep that deck viable, and it, w- it was the right step at that point. But that's kind of where things started spiraling out of control and where the deck really lost its hold as one of the top players in the format. Yeah, I think so too. And once you're adding Battle Rage, it's like, ah, just put Kiln Fiend in your deck. Yeah, do something just completely off the rails and, and much more proactively powerful. Because if you're in on that plan anyway, there's other ways to do it and there's ways to do it with more redundancy. But those ways aren't very good either. I mean, I'm not saying that's what you should do and it's the correct thing to do. It's just once you've said, this is the plan I want, there's more all-in ways of doing that plan. And I, I, I don't know. It, it's just a mistake basically at this point. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that there are a lot of different ways to build this deck. Like people are still hard lined in on like Street Wraith being the card that you use to turn on Death Shadow. But like, I think you could play more Dismembers and play Death Shadow and play like a slightly slower deck and have like Jace the Mind Sculptor in your deck if you wanted, Young Pyromancer, things like that. Like, I think people are just like a little too set in like keeping the core of the original version intact, but it's so outdated at this point. Mm. Well, they're waiting for you to figure it out. I mean, that's, that's what we do, right? You come along and you'll tell us the way it should be built. And then everyone will pick that up and we'll go forward from there. Nah, I mean, you need to like win a tournament with it or something. And I, I don't know. I don't even know when the next time I'm playing modern is, oh, I guess Las Vegas. That'll be fun. Okay. So there you go. Win that tournament, Grixis death shadow, restore it to its glory days. And then you'll be the hero of all these people. I don't even think Rix's Death Shadow is very good, even if I <laughs> built it this way. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to let decks go, right? Like decks fade into, they, they go off into the sunset, they had their run, and it comes to an end at some point. I had so much fun with Death Shadow. I love that card. No, it was great. It was, it was a great deck at one point, for sure. And just not anymore. Sad times. Should I play Jeskai in, in Vegas? We'll go off on this quick tangent here. Can I talk to you about Karn and how great? <laughs> okay, well, I guess I guess this is a good segue. I mean, with, so SCG Minneapolis humans won, beat Jeskai Control in the finals. Jonathan Rossum, the the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, rest of the top eight was Jund, Eldrazi Tron, Jeskai Control, humans, Burn Affinity. Uh, Marty Pyromancer got ninth in the hands of my homie Ryan Rowland. So. Much appreciate him repping the archetype, but then the modern PTQ go nuts, Brian. Tell us all, give us give us the good word of the Karn Father. First, let me set the stage for this PTQ. This is the Memorial Day Monday modern PTQ on Magic Online. It has over four hundred players, many of them very very good, experienced mages, and the Karn Father manages to take two of the top four slots. Um, straight mono green. Carnage, 
And I find this completely unsurprising because as we discussed where Jeskai is stepping up in the metagame, Karn is able to very much exploit that. But there's some key, key tweaks to this mono green list. And I think I can push it even further if, if you're a Karn lover uh, and make things even better for you. So the first thing I'll note is that the winner, Wuzzle King, which is a very weird name to say, the winner of the PTQ, pretty stock list for the most part. I'll call out that he didn't do anything goofy with his lands. He has the five forest. I really like that when you're facing Field of Ruin type decks and, and you really want to be able to get all your basics. Field of Ruin, Path to Exile decks, you want five forest in your deck. This is correct. Play five forest. Don't mess around with like an Urza's Factory or a Horizon Canopy or anything like that. Right. Well, the, the, so the real question is you you definitely want a Sanctum. You definitely want a Ghost Quarter, correct. right? And I, str- I stress that it's Ghost Quarter instead of Field of Ruin. Yep. Because if you are going through all the trouble to tutor for a land because you want to blow up their land, it should be Ghost Quarter. Totally agree. I, I think it has to be. There's so many strategic situations where if you've played this deck any amount, it will become very obvious to you that Field of Ruin simply does not do the job. You often need to Sylvan Scrying for the Ghost Quarter. You may need to um, you know, do something with your mana more proactively on that turn. You, you can't spend the two mana. It's not realistic. I get... That Field of Ruin is like the sexier card. It's it's a better card in a lot of ways. Not here. Ghost Quarter is the right tool for the job. The other card I really want to call out is the All is Dust that he has in the main deck. You have to pick your spots for something like All is Dust. It's not an obvious inclusion, uh, especially in the main deck. I just started playing one of my sideboard recently, was super happy with it. But calling it up to the main deck for this tournament is a really, really cool call. Um, I think he anticipated a certain metagame he wanted outs to certain cards and all his dust gave them to him or her i actually don't know who wuzzle king is so i'll acknowledge that well uh, king, king implies male. that's true that's true whatever we'll, we'll we'll leave that open for debate um but i do love the call of all his dust I, I i think it's really smart inclusion in this spot um you know maybe a little bit of a victim of the archetype's own success where he maybe faced some other Tron decks where all his dust is obviously not very good, but having that card against humans is a complete game changer. So I, I really like the inclusion of the one copy here. Uh, two Ulamogs, two Walking Ballista, three Worm Coil Engine, fine with those numbers. I think you can kind of move the Walking Ballista Worm Coil Engine numbers around a little bit, but I think you need the two Ulamogs. Um, but otherwise, just a very stock, good Tron list, and I, I really like everything going on here. Wuzzle King is not messing around. Yeah. Uh, how how valuable do you think the All Is Dust is compared to O-Stone or Ugin just because it is a different named card? It's important. It's, it's very important against Meddling Mage, for sure. And I, I wouldn't overlook that fact. One other thing I want to touch on as far as that kind of the sweeper issue, as I like to call it. So All Is Dust is the only one of your sweepers that cost seven as opposed to eight. Um, so it's the only one that can realistically be pay, played on turn three. Until you make a change that I really want to advocate in the sideboard. And by the way, I love 13 of the cards in the sideboard. I think they're spot on. I think three nature's claim is great. There's plenty of targets for it. I love two surgical extractions. I love having it in the mirror and going on the ghost quarter uh, surgical extraction, your Tron piece plan. That's something that Seth Manfield popularized in the mirror matchup. And I, I think it's a really great idea. It just gives you a proactive plan to look for. Very easy to land in the matchup. The Emrakul is great. Because when you're facing a lot of Jeskai, it's, it's awesome to have an Emrakul in your 75 somewhere. Um, so a great call for this particular weekend. But the card I really dislike is the Spatial Contortion. Only because it's so narrow. And I think Warping Whale does an 
extremely more efficient job of everything you want to do. Because when you have to kill a creature, it's usually one that's vulnerable to warping well, you know, like Thalia or a noble hierarch early or something like that. You're very happy hitting it with a warping well. But the more important thing is the fact that you can then produce eight mana on turn three. And a lot of your hands are going to want to do that. And you're relying on it to beat things like humans or a hollow one. Being able to make your sweeper on turn three is incredibly, incredibly important against those decks. And Warping Whale allows you to do that. So when I made the switch from Spatial Contortion to Warping Whale, it dramatically improved my humans matchup. So that's the one change I would make from this list. Otherwise, I think you'd pick up this list and do fantastic at GP Vegas. Word. Like, given all this dust, how much do you think the spatial contortions are there strictly because of meddling mage? Like, that is kind of the thing that strikes me. Like, I'm willing to believe that Warping Whale has better, broader applications, and especially, like, ramping into a sweeper when they basically won't expect it, right? I I, I get that, but I don't know. Like, how, how badly do you actually need to kill meddling mage? So I've beaten plenty of meddling mages in play. It's completely possible. Um, Through the exact chain... And I have lost... I've lost with plenty of Middle right, Ages. Right, right. So, and, and, and you know, through the, the situations that you're describing, a lot of times, if they don't have the perfect information, you know, they may be naming the spot removal spell first, or they may be, you know, just, just naming the card they're more vulnerable to, maybe naming all his dust. And if you have the Warping Well to get to the eight mana spot, you're able to just blow them out. I, I mean, I don't know. Can they get the perfect name? Sure. It absolutely can happen. But... You have ways around that. You have Walking Ballista. I mean, don't forget about Walking Ballista. There's other outs. You have Dismember in your deck. There's other outs to Meddling Mage. You're you're not hyper-reliant on having to get something like Spatial Contortion. And you're able to do so many other proactive things by having access to Warping Whale instead. So that's where I'm at right now. I get your point, and it's valid. But Warping Whale is going to cover so much more territory for you. And it just wins games that no other card can win. I mean, let's not even let's not even get into the applications against something like, say, Escape Shift, where now you have a counter spell for their Escape Shifts. You know, it doesn't come up a lot, but when it does, it's completely game-breaking. Oh, yeah. So I think the ceiling is so much higher on a card like Warping Whale over Spatial Contortion. I'm just playing devil's advocate, man. I basically agree with you. I think, I think that Ballista and Dismember specifically, like, give you enough outs and you're splitting your sweepers, so... I mean, they have they have so many things they have to meddling mage. Like things have to go so right, and if warping whale is that much better, which I'm willing to believe, then I mean, whatever. Like just play that, especially since it's good against other decks. But uh, burn is the other case that I would cite for like contortion over warping whale, but not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, you just have to get so lucky in that matchup. Honestly, it really comes right. down to like worm coil engine on turn three and was it able to successfully attack and nothing else really matters all those cards they are getting you little small points but if you don't have that worm coil on turn three nothing else really matters yeah so second place deck is old school blue white control so four spreading seas four field of ruin not good enough to be tron not nope, not, not all that surprising uh, another cool thing here which is a trend one supreme verdict one terminus one wrath of god one settle the wreckage Awesome. I mean, you have to do it. You have to do it against humans. I think it's so important. And, you know, props for, for spotting that. It's, it's just something you have to do against the humans deck to get around meddling mage. Otherwise, you'll find yourself without sweepers over and over. Respect. And how much do you think the Emrakul factored into uh, Wuzzle King defeating Blue Eye Control in the finals? I mean, like that, that could certainly have a big part to do with it, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you see so much of your deck that not even mentioning the fact that you have Sanctum of Ugin, so you just have like a hard tutor for Emrakul. And Emrakul is going to end most games that's cast against blue-white, I think. I, I don't think it's too hard to really wreck them with a Mind Slaver um, and set yourself up for future turns. So, look, if you think that blue-white and Jeskai are going to be a big part of the metagame going forward, just just grab this exact list if you want. If you don't believe me about Warping Well, that's fine. Just grab this exact 75, and you're going to be rewarded for doing so. In 13th place in this modern PTQ, we have one Cedric Phillips. I think he started like 6-0 or 7-0, too. He, he started 6-0, went 0-2, and then won the last round. Oh, no, 18th place, sorry. But yeah, he is diehard supporter of humans. He currently has my physical copy of humans that he uses to play weekly at Mox Boarding House in Seattle. Oh, I'll have to stop in and, and show him what the Tron matchup is all about next week. When I'm oh, here. dude, I would love that. <laughs> Just warping whale the hell out of him, please. I can't wait. Like, if you can do this on camera, too, like, I would appreciate that a lot. I'll do my best. Uh, he has absolutely zero cards for you in the sideboard, so have fun with that. Awesome. I mean, what can you really do, though? There's there's really not much that you, you... You need your proactive original plan to be good enough against Tron. There's goofy stuff you can do, but, like, if your proactive plan isn't good enough, then you're just, like... I, I mean... It's, it's not effective to fundamentally warp your strategy against Tron because your primary strategy is effective against them. Like tons of meddling mages, tons of Thalias, all that stuff is going to get the job done. Kite Sail Freebooter, also a fine card. If that doesn't hold the fort, nothing else that you're bringing in your sideboard is really going to. So I, I think that's fine. Yeah, I do too. Uh, so Cedric, notably one of the diehard supporters of humans. And it's always weird, right? It's like this person who is is primarily known for his love of tribal decks is telling me that humans is the best deck in modern, even though there are like people are changing their decks dramatically to be better against humans, like splitting their sweepers. Like they are very cognizant that it is a deck and a deck that they are going to need to beat in order to beat the tournament. And you're telling me that your deck with 19 creatures four or 19 lands, four eights or vials and all creatures is the best deck in the format by far. Like, I don't believe you. <laughs> You're trying to say he might be an unreliable source as far as these issues go? He might be biased. It's hard to say, but he's not the only one. I mean, you have uh, people like Emma Handy writing like very similar articles, and you have obviously plenty of people who are still playing humans in tournaments. Like They believe it gives them the best shot to succeed, right? So who's right? Well, I, I guess I'm going to hedge my bet a little bit here. If, if you were just saying, like, here's the decks in modern, you're only allowed to play stock versions of it. There's there's no metagaming going on. Nothing's being targeted. It's just like you're playing these stock lists against each other and jamming them. What's the best deck in modern? It's humans. I'm okay with that. But that's not what's going on here. And this deck is very much wearing a target on its back. Is it able to overcome that target sometimes because it is so powerful? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And look, it just won the last SCG. So it doesn't take a rocket science scientists to figure out that it's completely capable of still winning tournaments. But in the face of all this hate, is it going to consistently dominate? Is it going to remain the largest deck in terms of metagame share? I, I don't think so. I think it's already trending down. I think it will continue to do so. And I think its win rate is going to slowly creep down back to reality. I mean, there was people clamoring for a ban of humans recently all this stuff is silly and it, it it's born of an era that we just got out of where there was a ton of bannings and 
you know, things really were messed up and required a lot of bannings, but things aren't like that anymore. And people need to get over this whole, oh, is anything going to be banned? No, the meta is going to correct itself and it's already doing so. And things are getting back to a place where humans is a very, very good deck. You are completely reasonable if you choose to take this to your next modern tournament. But I'm not willing to say it's authoritatively the correct choice or you're doing something wrong if you're not playing humans at this point. That is a phenomenal answer. I really like that. That's what I'm here for, giving these phenomenal answers. You're here for winning tournaments. I'm here for the phenomenal answers. Oh, crap. I have a tournament this weekend. I don't think I'm going to win, so. Get to winning, then. I mean, that's your end of the bargain, so. Ooh. Oh, man. I don't know. I'll, I'll just have you win, like, the, the Mox Boarding House weeklies, and you can <laughs> talk about how badly you beat Cedric every week. I would love that. Uh, if that's what our listeners want, I'm, ha- I'm happy to provide that. That's fine. So I, I don't want to dive too much into, like, game win percentages or whatever, but I'm just trying to find any sort of reason to give Cedric crap, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, there's there's this person in 22nd uh, who went 7-2. and two. They had a 75% game win percentage. That's pretty good, right? Sure. That is higher th- a, a higher game win percentage than the person who went 9-0 in the tournament. Wow. So Cedric's game win percentage with humans, 61. So you're saying the edges are narrow. The edges are narrow, and... You're, you're going to play a lot of close games, a lot of close matches. And he ended up on the good side of it in seven of them and the bad side of two. And, like, that's all it takes in, in these PTQs, especially one with 400 people in it. For sure. So you can say, like, oh, Cedric won seven and two. He was very close to making top eight. But, like, man, 61% is, like, a very, very low game win percentage. It is. It is. It's not a dominant performance, even though the end result is, is fine. You know, good showing for sure. But... That's not what the most dominant deck in the format looks like. And I, th- I think if you went through all the humans players in this tournament and kind of checked that out, you'd be trending on the low side. I, I think you win a lot of two ones on your way to these good finishes. And you really have to get those, those game wins and get those top decks at the key moments to find your ultimate success in the tournament. Yep, I definitely agree. So uh, do you own the entirety of, of Tron? Yeah, yeah, I do. With Antiquities, nice. Tron lands that I... I think they might be from PAX, but I'm actually not 100% sure on that. Maybe I just purchased them somewhere years ago, but I've had them for a very long time. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, if you want to uh, you know, get that 75 that won the PTQ, swap out those contortions for Warping Whales and just loan that to me for Vegas, I might play it. Maybe. Consider it a done deal. I, I mean, it's, it's literally built at my house right now. The only question is, do I get to Seattle before you leave? for vegas and i think the answer is no oh no that's that's a shame yeah well i'll look into it maybe i can find someone in my neck of the woods who's heading out to you and i can i can have them deliver it to you yeah we can figure it out because tron is one of the decks that i don't own cards for like the majority of them like i have all the commons and uncommons and stuff but not the super expensive cards no stones and whatnot blasphemy how could you not own the Karn father I, i i don't even know what to say right now Look, man, I have eight copies of Cyanoversa. Is that good? <laughs> sure, that's fine. I, I mean, you'll get used out of that as well, but it doesn't help you in this particular situation. Okay, wh- can I play like Affinity with Opal, Springleaf Drum, Spirit Guide, and four cards? Sure. Is that allowed? Y- yeah, that sounds exciting. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I was very high on Karn in Affinity. With the caveat that I'm not an affinity master. And as I talk to more and more affinity masters, they're just like, eh, it's fine. It's like not as exciting as I thought. But maybe you need to work to make it more exciting. 
maybe there's ways where right. it just becomes just, dominant. Um, and, you know, turn two Karn in Affinity, well, that sounds pretty good to me, so... Yeah, I would just do that every game, just start pumping out five fives, you know, like, oh, they make a hollow one and I just make a five five. It's like, what's up? Sounds good. Yeah, that's very difficult for them to beat. Otherwise, I I uh, have Mardu sleeved up from spell slinging and this uh, Jeskai control deck looks pretty nice. Not going to lie. It does. I, I would be tempted to play Jeskai control just because I do love the style. It's been a minute since I played Jeskai control in modern, you know, probably going back to like. I'm thinking like Shahar's World Championship where he played Jeskai Control. Oh, yeah. That, that might have been the last version of Jeskai Control I've played in a modern tournament. And and that's years ago now. So it's been a minute. Yeah, I hated that one, but I love Search for Escanta and Teferi and Logic Knot. So. Different format. I mean, apples to oranges, but it, it certainly has gotten very powerful tools over the years. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Everything else I basically wouldn't touch, though. Like, I'm not I'm not super hyped about Jund or Hollow One or Humans, uh, definitely, eh, I'm, I would have to take a closer look at Burn, but like, I don't think it looks particularly good. I mean, you know it's being played right now. There's people who are absolutely playing Burn, and it's not at the top of these tournaments. Oh, yeah. I would estimate it's underrepresented for its portion of the metagame in the winner's metagame. That's my guess. Uh, it's probably not doing very well. Likely. So if if I were to play Jeskai Control or for the Jeskai Control aficionados out there, the jig is up, right? Like people know that your deck is good and they basically know what your deck list is. Like how are people going to try to actually fight against this? Like are they going to change their decks? Are they going to add specific cards or anything? It seems like it's really difficult to actually, you know, target this or play some deck that like crushes it or whatever. Yeah, the specific cards thing is just difficult for a very broad controlling strategy like Jeskai. You can make small tweaks here and there that'll get you some points. Uh, maybe there's some trumps you could look to, but nothing that I'm really happy to be playing. So I don't know. I, I think that I think that you'll see small tweaks that slowly push Jeskai back to the rest of the field and then the, the circle starts all over again. But little tweaks are going to even out its win percentage to just a, a completely reasonable choice, but... Again, not the best deck. That's what happens. People make small tweaks to their sideboards, to their main decks, and all these decks fall back to the field eventually. Or is it just Tron? Even Tron falls back to the field once in a while. I mean, four weeks ago, I would have been like, Tron's unplayable. So <laughs> it, it changes quickly. Uh, you know, I played GP Hartford and did miserable with Tron. Um, and it, it wasn't even really like a matchup thing, but I started to see the matchups out there. And I started to see potential for like, the free wins were gone, essentially. Now they came back a little bit. Right. I, I guess that's the biggest knock against something like Jeskai is that where do the free wins come from? They're just not there, really. Like a deck like Jeskai is never going to have the free wins. You're always going to battle to some extent. But when the battle is really efficient, I, like it's like blue-white in standard where you want to hate that archetype, but it just does something so powerful that's undeniable. I think Jeskai is like kind of in the same range as far as control decks go. Yeah, that's legit. I mean, I would like to think that uh, Teferi and Search for Escanta give you some amount of like snowballing potential, but there is like you're not chaining like glimmer of geniuses and like setting up like a perfect hand or whatever. For for the most part, you need your opponent to actually be doing stuff in order for you to get to use your cards, yeah. which is very weird. Yeah, yeah, that's awkward. All right, I think Mardu is number one, Jeskai's number two, Karn's number three, Weirdo, other Karn Brew, Distant number four. That's kind of where I'm at. 
That's a fine breakdown. I don't, I don't object to that. It's hard to talk you off Mardu Pyromancer given your success and your knowledge of the archetype. And I just think it's well positioned right now. So I, I'm not going to put the hard card sell on you, but it's there if you want it. That's all I'm going to say. All I'm saying is if you hand me a sleeve 75, I'd be more likely to play it. It, it would go from that, like 3%. That's good per- enough for you. It would go from like 3% to like 7%, you know? Okay. I like those odds. I, I've, I've won in worse situations. So. All right. Well, uh, I want to give away some sleeves. So do we have a question? Yeah, we can definitely get a question. And also, I, I don't. I, I think we hinted that we were going to do it, but we hit one of our stretch goals just this past week, oh, yeah. which means bonus content is on the way very soon. Yeah, I mean, I think first we have to get through this pro tour. We have to get you all moved and settled. Correct. Uh, we have to. We have to. You know, make sure that the, your wife isn't too stressed out or anything, and everything's going well with her. And she settled into her new job and everything. Mm-hmm. Make sure that everything is cool, and then, uh, yeah, we'll we'll start doing it. Maybe, maybe coming off the heels of this pro tour, like we can have a, a sweet guest, or potentially, maybe this isn't looking likely, but we could put like possibly do a unified standard thing. But I doubt it'll happen. But just like stuff like that, like I think those are the things that people can look forward to. More of like modern content or. Uh, guest episodes, like interviews, stuff like the level up episodes. I think like those are more likely to happen than just like an additional daily glimpse into like what's happening in standard or whatever. Right. Weirdo stuff. I mean, that's what I'm looking forward to. I think we can really push the boundaries and and give our listeners something special in those episodes and do something not like our weekly show. And and it seems like people are really looking forward to that. So I, I can't wait to get to it. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously thanks to everyone who helped us hit that stretch goal and this is, it's just getting insane. Like I, I've been telling people that I'm a professional podcaster now. So I, I legitimately do not have another job. So I'm also <laughs> a professional podcaster at this point. Anyway, I, I've got a question for us. Hit me. So Matt Nelson, longtime Patreon Discord participant. I want to I want to do his question this week. I really like it. He asks, you both you nice. both follow other esports and events. What's the one thing that each of you think could be done to improve organized play? And I'm going to let you fire first because you're way more involved with organized play than I am. So it makes sense to get your take first. Uh, I mean, for, for me, I just want a Red Bull sponsorship and I'd be able to go to more tournaments, you know, but that's, the, that's it just for you. No, the, the real answer is uh, I know a lot of people are struggling with like the PPTQ system and uh, even just like Grand Prix and Pro Tours like I. I find it hard to believe that the system right now is doing the best job at serving the most amount of people that it possibly could. So for example, I know that a lot of the RPTQs are sold out for the the team unified stuff. It just ended up being like too many people were qualified basically because they could just like take their friends. And if someone doesn't get to play in an RPTQ that they want to, like that is horrendous. So there are just like a lot of problems there. I think that the dream of playing on the pro tour is very difficult. The more popular that magic gets in like that, aside from like the last couple of years, it being kind of rocky, like that has basically happened like every single year after year. Right. So the pro tour itself has remained basically unchanged since its inception. And that makes me really question whether or not it's actually like serving its goals. Like I, I think that the, the pro tour is, you know, jokingly the, the promotional tour or whatever, like it is supposed to spotlight the new cards and the, the players and all that sort of thing. But like, 
I'm I'm honestly not sure that it's doing the best job of doing that. I think something along the lines of like the world championships would do a better job of that. And so like the PPTQ system was created to add a step in between qualifying for the pro tour. PTQs were getting too large. So they needed to add like a pre-qualifier tournament to the PTQs to keep the size down. And I think that that sort of step might need to happen in order to be able to increase the slots for the pro tour. And I, I want pro tours to be like bigger events, like thousand person events, like kind of what Grand Prix are now and still try and maintain the prestige of that tournament by having that tournament, like qualify you for like a quarterly world style thing. So worlds would be the thing that spotlights like the players, the sets, the, the new strategies and everything. The pro tour would be like, this is the thing that you qualify to like win money and get pro points and like, qualify for worlds to like play with the big people in the game or whatever. And then grand prix are just like con type events where like you go to have fun and there's a lot else going on besides the tournament and you get to give away like more slots. And that makes more people happy because like more people will get to play on the pro tour. And obviously you have to keep the pro tour like feeling as special. Right. But I think they can do that. And I don't know. Like, obviously, this is like all kind of like broad strokes and very complicated and blah, blah, blah. But I I feel like in order for Magic to continue to succeed and have people like trying to get on the Pro Tour, like you have to actually scratch that itch for some people because there are people who play for like five to ten years and like still never get to the Pro Tour. And it's not because they're like not deserving or anything. It's just because like there are only so few slots and it's really hard to qualify. So I think like that overall is like the one thing that OP is like kind of failing at right now. I, I think that's a great answer and very much in line with my own experiences. I mean, I basically don't play PPTQs anymore. The system's just not for me. And I want to play a, another Pro Tour very, very badly. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I I've often said that I've made peace with the fact that you know, this is where my magic interest is right now. I love talking about the game every week, and that's really my number one priority, not returning to the Pro Tour and, and not being a gold pro. That's fine. But I do want to play more Pro Tours. Just the PPTQ system doesn't work for me. I don't I don't want to give up that many weekends. I, I don't want to play those smaller tournaments. I'm, you know, where there's big skill gaps, it can be uncomfortable sometimes. And PPTQs for some people are a way to the Pro Tour. And for other people, they're the local tournament that's at their store. And I've had this experience a few times where this, the skill gap is a little uncomfortable. And, you know, I don't think anyone benefits from that situation. And I think your response for what to do with the broader Pro Tour is really good. I, I like the idea of adding more tiers, essentially. Um, you look at something like the Capcom Pro Tour for Street Fighter, and there's a lot more tiers in that system than we have in our own system. But this kind of gets to my biggest problem with OP is that OP works really hard at optimizing this pro tour system and, and figuring out ways to make the logistics of all this work and and to get to put that carrot in front of us to, to make the system something that's appealing to all players but this system has essentially remained the same for like 20 years now i in in some form pro tours have looked something like this um you know you can go back and say well there used to be you used to call to qualify for the pro tour you used to have to call a phone number and that's how you qualified for the first pro tour obviously things were like pretty different back then but ostensibly it's still been the same kind of series like there's this many pro tours and you try and get this many pro points and then you hit this club and it, it's all looked very similar for a very long period of time and the model is outdated I think it should just be scrapped. I think the Pro Tour needs to become something totally new, 
start from the ground up. Like we don't need any of these systems we've used to this point. Look to other esports, look to digital card games and see how they're doing their system. And, and look, there's a lot of flaws with something like Hearthstone system. I don't know a lot about yes. something like a shadow versus system. I, I mean, I know you play a lot of shadow versus. What do you think about their OP system? Like there's other options out there. It doesn't have to be what we've been doing for 20 years. Yeah. I mean, Shadowverse basically doesn't have a system like they have some live tournaments and now they have some tournaments in their client and everything. But like Hearthstone's tournament series is like a thing I want to participate in. I would love to just like go play Hearthstone tournaments and like, you know, show up to like a Hearthstone PTQ or whatever. But it's like their system is like so murky and weird. And it's like it involves like a ton of like grinding on ladder and like trying to maintain your rank for like the last 10 hours. And just like I don't want to be a part of that right like no no so i think magic is mostly doing it right where it's like oh you know like if you do well in a series of tournaments you will eventually like be able to qualify for bigger tournaments and i think that that system generally is good but i think the uh like the way it's being implemented now is kind of poor like i mean if if there are too many people who want to play in ptqs it just means that there are not enough slots in the pro tours and if you can figure out a way to get more people on the pro tour while also keeping the pro tour like prestigious to some degree, like obviously you can't just give everyone an invite to the PT because then no one cares. Right. But like, as long as you make it something that people still want to keep fighting for, then I think you're winning. But yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. Like I, obviously if you just scrap the entire system, like it's, where do you start? What do you do? It's so hard. Well, don't you have interest? Don't you have interest in seeing what that looks like though? Like, it doesn't have to be something done behind closed doors. You could put up proposals and say, we came up with these systems. After I mean, look, this is the biggest card gaming property in the world and has been for a very long time. And devoting the type of resources to having also the best OP program, uh, that seems reasonable to me. It doesn't seem like too big of an ask. Is there a necessary revamp that has to be done? I don't think so. I think like OP is there's issues with difficulty in qualifying and staying qualified, all those things I'd like to see remedied to some extent. And your tier solution sounds nice. I like more tiers. I think that would be a very clean solution. But I also want to know like, what happens if you just bring in a team and say, give us four new ideas for what our OP could look like in the future. And then those sure. ideas are shared with the community and everyone talks about them. And those ideas are melded into something really special, really unique that is really advancing the game. I mean... Any system that sits in place for 20 years, it merits looking at it from the ground up, I think. So maybe now's the time to have these exploratory conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if if not now, certainly, you know, one year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. But sure, we are where we are, and that's fine. I think that it is much easier for Wizards and potentially Hasbro to, instead of like, scrap an entire system and continually come up with like a good system. It's just like, well, let's just bandaid the one that we have and keep going with that. And like, it's, it's fine. It's not the best that it could be. Right. But I don't know. We'll see what happens with arena and more of like a move into digital. Like people are always talking about like, Oh, just sell cosmetics and let that go into the prize pool and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Like, I think that would be wildly successful. I am just a giant sucker for cosmetics. So like, I mean, you, you would get my 50 or hundred bucks for sure. Right. Right. So just calling back to the point of like band-aiding a system, inertia is one of the most damning things for any corporation's endeavors because the inertia of the product and the system that you've always used just gets rolling and rolling and rolling. And I've seen it in, you know, the lawyering world. I've seen it in the gaming world. 
it just once this thing is in place and it starts going, it becomes impossible to stop, analyze it and say, look, this isn't working anymore. It's, it's time to reboot. And I honestly don't know if things are at that point. I think you could band-aid this system. And you know, I've been doing this for a very long time for a good reason. I generally enjoy the chase of the pro tour. Um, I, like I said, I don't like the PPTQ system, but I, I love PTQs for years and years. And if PTQs, pure PTQs came back, I'd love them again right now. So there, there's a lot of good stuff there. But inertia is, is a beast that all corporations have to deal with. And it's, it's very challenging to deal with. But you can, you can reap a lot of rewards by kind of just starting from the ground up and seeing what other options are out there. Yes, absolutely. A lot of, a lot of different options and obviously it's super tough, but yeah, you know, things aren't perfect. I think, I think we could have given like any number of different answers for this question and they would have been like, quote unquote, correct. Right. It's like everyone can have uh, criticisms or disagreements or whatever. And, you know, it's not wrong. It's just like at the end of the day, like what is the best thing that you can do to serve the the greatest amount of people? And I right. know that they are actively trying to do that. It's just, it, yep. it is really difficult. It is a lot of different interests out there. So, you know, it's always nice to have these conversations just as exploratory things. I don't, I don't mean to bash what exists now. It's just like, well, maybe there's other stuff we could be doing. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And if if new things happen, cool. Like I am, I'm very happy to like try out a new thing, see if it works. If it doesn't, like we can always just revert. You know, at least you tried. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Well, I have to. I have 45 minutes to submit my deck list for the Pro Tour. So sign me out, and also give me a deck list and a sideboarding guide. Thanks. Uh, that's game. And Jerry, play something awesome. That's it. Good luck.